I'll direct your attention to John 18. Pick back up our study there. John 18, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound Him. Remember, this is right after the confrontation in the garden. First, they led Him to Annas, for He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Now, Lord, open to us your word that we may hear, that we may even through these words, experience what you were doing that night, not only the lives, uh, life of Peter, but since you saw that it is written down, what you desire to do in our lives through this account, for Christ's sake. Amen. And so you know this story. All four of the Gospels, in fact, tell us of Peter's failure to stand for Christ in the face of his enemies in the courtyard. It's just one of those stories that the more you read it, the more heartbreaking it becomes, but also the more easy to understand because there's something of Peter in all of us. It's easy to stand in the company of Christ's people like this and say, I will follow you at all costs, even if that's my life. As Peter did back in John 13, Something else entirely, when push comes to shove and owning up to Jesus actually does cost you something. Would you deny Christ if the circumstances were right? Have you denied Christ? Perhaps in subtle ways. And is there hope when you do? 
These are just some of the questions that we want to consider as we look at this passage, which begins when Jesus is bound like a criminal and led away to trial in verse 12. And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So this is that same group that we saw last time led by Judas who came up the hill in order to arrest Jesus in the garden. But remember, it didn't quite go as they had planned. They were expecting to find a fugitive in hiding. That's why they brought the torches and lanterns you know, to search him out from his hiding place to find him. They also feared there could be trouble. That's why they've got the soldiers. And apparently lots of them uh, were told that there was a captain among them. Uh, That is a Roman tribune. It's the actual technical word for that. A commander of of a thousand. Now, that doesn't mean there were a thousand soldiers there that day, but this is the man's rank, and he would have brought a sufficient detachment. But do you remember what happened when they got there? Instead of them advancing on Jesus, Jesus advanced on them. Uh, Verse 4 says that then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he, or more literally, I am. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Instantly, he overpowers them, and then commands them in verse 18 to let His men go. Only then does Jesus surrender Himself to them, which is why last time we called this a sovereign surrender. Jesus is in control of the entire situation and gives Himself to be bound. There's a scene in the Superman movie called Man of Steel that reminds me of this. The authorities come to take Superman into custody because they're a bit afraid of him. And he lets himself be taken and handcuffed. And you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not going to do any good. And of course it doesn't. Later he snaps the handcuffs like they're made out of paper. These men still have dirt on their clothes from being prone upon the ground at a word from Jesus. And then they bind him? No, no, no. He lets himself... Be bound. John 10, verse 18, Jesus had said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. But they bind Him. And there really is significance in that act because this is, in fact, sacrificial language. The binding of a sacrifice. Just as Isaac had let himself be bound by Abraham his father in Genesis 22 as an act of sacrifice, so Christ is bound in obedience to his father. In fact, sacrificial language runs all through this narrative. Jesus, you'll notice, is bound as a sacrifice. He is led away like a lamb to the slaughter in the presence of the high priest where He will die in the place of His people. That's the literal reading of verse 14 when it says Jesus would, it would be expedient that one man should die for who pair that is in the place of His people. John doesn't use that, ac- that language by accident. John wants you, the reader, to make the connection between all that is happening to Jesus and all that is necessary for you and your salvation. 
In fact, it is an echo of Isaiah 53, verse 6 and 7. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You know, he didn't protest. He didn't shout. He didn't cry for, for, for mercy. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he opened not his mouth. And so that, that process of Jesus laying down his life begins in earnest as he is led away to the high priest. Verse 13 says, First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Annas. Why Annas first? I mean, he's not the high priest. He doesn't have any official authority to condemn Jesus. Well, that's what you think. That's because you're not a first century Jew. Because if you were, you would know this man, Annas, he's the real power in this whole situation, humanly speaking. Annas actually had been high priest from AD 6 to AD 15, according to the Jewish historian Josephus. But in AD 15, Annas had gotten into a tussle with the Roman governor, uh, Valerius Gratus, and Valerius had deposed him, you know, tossed him out of office. That didn't sit well with the Jewish people. The law of Moses commanded that the high priest should serve for life. Not that the Romans cared about that any, but the Jewish people did. And so even though Annas was no longer high priest officially, he was still the one they looked to as the true high priest over the nation. Which is, by the way, why in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, uh, Luke says a strange thing. He says that that took place during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Scholars used to kind of look down upon that statement by Luke and say, well, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. You don't ever have two high priests. Au contraire. Luke knows what he's talking about. You did in this strange situation. Annas is high priest in the minds of the people. Annas is the power behind the power, the shadow priest in the background, manipulating things as he will. He even manages to get five of his sons and then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, seated as high priest in his place. And so you can think of him as the political puppet master behind the scenes, pulling the strings. That's why they bring Jesus to him. Officially, he has no power, but in reality, whatever he says, that's what's going to go. So this, this really is a shadow trial, and technically an illegal trial by Jewish standards. It's, it's held at night in a private residence, overseen by the deposed high priest and his hand-picked pack of cronies. But this is where the real decision is going to be made. And what about Caiaphas himself, you know, the official high priest? Well, he's not there initially, and perhaps... That's for the sake of deniability. But don't doubt that he's in on it. As John reminds us in verse 14, it was this same Caiaphas who counseled the Jews all the way back in John 11 that Jesus had to die. This is for them a foregone conclusion. Uh, they're just trying to figure out how to make it happen. Interesting little sidelight here. Back in 1990, 
a bone box, that is a funeral box, an ossuary, uh, was found in a burial cave uh, near Jerusalem with the name Caiaphas carved into it. Many scholars believe it probably does contain the bones of this very man, though though some dispute that, and, and some of his family members. But it's a reminder to us that all those who stand against Christ die and decay. They become bones in a box. But Christ lives forever. And so Jesus lets Himself be led away to face these men. It's then that John turns our attention to Peter. That brings us to Peter's compromise in the courtyard. Verse 15 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus. Now, let's stop and give credit where credit is due. Peter is following Jesus. John wants to make it clear that we see that. All the other disciples have scattered in the night except for these two. It says there's another disciple who is with him. These two have determined to remain faithful. And the language John uses here emphasizes that fact. Peter followed Jesus. In fact, I've underlined this in my Bible because whatever else you may think of me one day, I hope it will include this, that I followed Jesus. Are you following Jesus? Are you determined to go with Him no matter where that might lead? Because it may lead to some pretty scary places. Peter followed Jesus. Though the other Gospels will say he did so at a distance. And we'll come back to that. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest... He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So there's another disciple there with Peter whose name is never given, right? And that fact that his name is never given has led to an awful lot of speculation. Who is this unnamed disciple? Well, traditionally, almost universally, Christian expositors have believed this is John himself, the author of this gospel, who in many places includes himself in the narrative but never reveals his name. That would explain, by the way, why he's able to tell us what went on inside that courtroom with such detail because, well, he was there. But many modern scholars reject the idea that this could actually be John, the son of Zebedee, the fisherman, Why? Well, they say, would it really be possible for a simple fisherman from Galilee to be known personally by the high priest in such a way that he can just waltz right in to the courtyard like this while a trial's going on? Well, that is a good question. Uh, Richard Bauckham, who is no slouch, he's a, he's a scholar that I have a lot of respect for, and Bauckham has speculated that this could in fact be a secret disciple uh, who actually lived in Jerusalem and may even have been a priest himself uh, given the fact of this access. I won't discount that entirely. But remember, John's family were not just simple, poor fishermen. We're told in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, that when John and James go off to follow Jesus, 
their father Zebedee is left in the boat with the hired men, with the employees, with the hired servants. They had employees. They had a business, and it appears to have been a fairly prominent business. There's other things that tip us off in that direction, with perhaps even a number of connections in Jerusalem itself. And remember, this is not a large country. Uh, we're not like moving from uh, St. Louis to California here. Uh, it's just a few miles between these places. And there were lots of interconnections. And the, the, even the high priest and all the priests were expected to have gainful employment outside of the priesthood. And so there was a, a lot more meshing and mixing than we would tend to think. John may even have had relatives who were in the priesthood. There's some things to indicate that as well. So uh, John may have been at this home many times for various reasons. And so in the absence of anything really definitive, I personally believe the tradition that this is in fact John the beloved disciple. But back to the story in verses 15 and 16. John is known. So he just dashes right in. The servant girl obviously recognizes him, waves him through. But Peter is a stranger. He stopped at the door. And so we have this interesting setup with with John on the inside with Jesus, but Peter on the outside. And again, the language that John uses here calls our attention to that. There's this, this sense of a growing distance between Peter and Jesus. Peter is trying to follow Jesus, but he's been doing so at a distance. He wants to be faithful and go where Jesus goes, but he can't seem to get there on his own. He's hindered. He's prevented. He's at a distance. So John goes on in. It's almost like John stops at someone and says, Wait a minute, where's Peter? Oh! And he has to go back on the outside and bring him in. And as they make their way back through the door, the servant girl asks Peter a question in verse 17. Now, maybe she's just doing her job. She was put there to keep out those who didn't belong. And maybe there's even a fear that certain followers of Jesus will try to get in here and create some trouble. Or perhaps she just heard his Galilean accent when he was speaking with John. We're not told for sure. But whatever it is, she looks at him in verse 17. And she asks the question, You're also, You also are not one of this man's disciples. Are you? Now, this is not a confrontation. The way she asks the question, she indicates that she really didn't think this was the case. Greek has a way of phrasing a question to let you know whether the one asking the question is expecting you to say yes or is expecting you to say no. In this case, she asks expecting no. You're not one of his disciples, are you? I don't think so, but, but I have to ask the question. It is not a confrontation. And yet it is enough to make Peter flinch. I am not, Peter says. The first denial. Now why did he do that? Well, maybe he thought that's what it took to gain entrance here. Just a little white lie, just a little compromise to get inside with these men where maybe I can then do some kind of good. You know, I'll hide my my connection to Jesus at first, 
Don't don't be too overt about my faith. Uh, Don't let them see that I'm with Him. And and then maybe later, after they've accepted me, I'll be in a position to do some good. Have you ever been tempted to do anything like that? it's It's a strategy that it seems to me many Christians have adopted today. Hide the fact that you're following Jesus to fit in. To not stand out in a crowd. You know, go into stealth mode. I was at a coffee shop one time and there were some guys sitting near my table, clearly unbelievers, somewhat loudly mocking Christians the way people sometimes will do. And I would really love to tell you about how bold I was to stand there and let them know that I belonged to Jesus. Truth is, I didn't even get my Bible out of my bag. And that was why I was there. I was going to do a little reading, a little devotional. But rather than have my Bible open in public where these men could see, I used the app on my phone. Later I thought, why did I do that? Why did I do that? I know why I did it. There's a little bit of Peter in me. What about you? You ever hide your connection to Jesus to keep from standing out? Do you ever let His enemies just assume that you're one of them for the sake of avoiding the hassle? It's an easy thing to do. And you can come up with all kinds of excuses for doing it. I sure did. But let me warn you. That's a habit that's very easy to get into, but really hard to break. Once you get into the habit of distancing yourself from Jesus, it gets easier the next time, and the next, and the next. And remember, we're talking about Peter here. This is no marginal disciple. We're talking about someone who's, 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 who's not just barely in the faith. This is Peter, the rock, the lead disciple. We expect more from Him than this. This is Peter who has pledged his life and everything to follow Jesus, and yet, when questioned by this little girl at the door in a non-threatening way, Peter blinks and walks right by in a guilty silence. Peter hides his connection to Jesus to fit in with those who despise Him. That's not going to end well. It never does. We see that beginning to take shape in verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves, but Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. What a scene. Nighttime gets cold in Jerusalem, even in the spring because of the high elevation. It's about a half a mile up. And so the very men who had just arrested Jesus, minus the Romans, they've gone back to their fortress, but the very temple guards who had arrested Jesus are standing around this charcoal fire and we're told that Peter is with them. And that sets up this third thing. Peter's failure to stand for Jesus in the presence of his enemies. Right at the end of verse 18, Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Again, John's use of language here is powerful. It's convicting. For Peter is standing with them. 
these words imply more than just mere presence. They imply fellowship. They imply fitting in. Uh, being one with the crowd. There's even a, a, a bit of an echo here of Psalm 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The blessed man avoids this situation of standing with those who despise God and giving the appearance of being one of them And yet that is exactly what Peter does. And John's narrative then leaves him in that condition for a while, standing silent as a stone in stealth mode. As verse verse 19 to 24 then take us into the inner chamber where Jesus is being interrogated. And we'll pick that part of the story up next week. But but the reason that John does that and the way he writes his Gospel... I love John. I mean, the dude just is brilliant. Uh, The Holy Spirit working through him, of course. But the reason John does it this way is to show us that all these things are happening simultaneously. At the very moment Jesus is standing boldly before His accusers, bearing witness to the fact that He is indeed the Son of God, Peter is out there refusing to stand, hiding in the shadows, denying that he's ever even met Christ. So let's pick that story up in verse 25. We're told that Peter is still standing and warming himself. And according to the other Gospels, he's been there for about an hour now. Verse 24 tells us that it is right about this time that they transfer Jesus from the residence of Annas to that of Caiaphas. These men probably shared the same property uh, there in Jerusalem uh, with a common courtyard between them. And so as they take Jesus through that courtyard, Peter is standing there In stealth mode. Pick up in verse 24. And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the actual high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. The second denial. Again, the person who asks the question doesn't think this is actually true. It's that same Greek form. I don't think this is the case, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? I mean, I know you're from out of town. You're not one of us. You've got that crazy northern accent. So, are you one of his? Surely not. And again, Peter denies it. I am not. More urgently this time, uh, Matthew 6, 20, uh, 26.72 says he does it with an oath. I swear I'm not. Heck no, that's not me. But you realize Peter's got himself in a pickle. He's standing here in the heart of the lion's den trying to fit in with the lions. And about this time, he realizes how impossible that's going to be. What fellowship does light have with darkness? Child of God, listen. You cannot hide your light under a basket and get away with it. If you truly belong to Him, the light that He gave is going to shine through. In fact, I believe Jesus will see to it eventually that your light does shine through if you're His Because He has appointed you to be a witness to Him and to His glory, not to sit there in a guilty silence. I mean, something 
is deeply wrong spiritually if you can do so. If you or I can sit there and be accepted by the world that loves darkness and hates Christ and never be exposed as Christians, something is deeply wrong spiritually. I won't say that you're not a Christian. Peter is a Christian. But I will say that your soul at that point is in danger. I wonder if at any point Peter looked back and remembered the words Jesus had spoken in Matthew 10.32 that everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies Me before men, I also will deny before My Father who is in heaven. Peter's in trouble. And he knows it. And based on the other Gospels, I believe that at this point he, he gets up and begins to make his way for the door. And then this happens. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once rooster crows. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? This one is an accusation. It's in that other Greek form uh, that demands a yes answer. Yes, I am sure it's you. Uh, The police would have called this a positive identification. This man was there. Not only was he there, but the guy that Peter cut was a relative. As dark as it may have been in that garden, this man was probably only a few feet away. I know it's you. That's my cousin's blood on your shirt. Peter panics. Matthew 26.74 says he begins to swear and call down curses on himself. I doubt we'd even print what he said at this point. Somewhere in the night, a rooster crows. And as that sound reaches Peter's ear, he remembers what Jesus said when He had boasted that He would willingly lay His life down for Christ. John 13.38 Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for Me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied Me three times. And Peter breaks. Luke 22.61 says at that very moment as Jesus is being led through the courtyard, He turns and looks Peter in the eye and Peter is shattered. Luke says He then flees from the presence of Christ through the gate, out the door, weeping bitterly. Peter has failed his Lord. He has denied Him whom his soul loves. What now? You ever wonder that? In the face of your failures? When you sin, not just for the third, the fourth, or the fifth time, but for the ten thousandth? And what now? Am I done? Is all lost? I've I've rejected him again. Will, Will he just wash his hands of me now? I mean, I wouldn't blame him if he did. It's certainly what I deserve. Some follower of Jesus I am. I had a student once in my New Testament class. She'd never really read the Bible. We were in the book of Acts at the very beginning. 
And as I was talking about Peter at Pentecost and how boldly he stood there that day declaring the Gospel Christ to anyone who would listen in those packed streets of Jerusalem, she raised her hand and she said, Professor, so this is a different guy named Peter, right? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, that other guy, the fisherman, he's gone, right? He denied Christ. He's out. And she was truly puzzled. It was my joy to tell her, no, this is the same guy. Because this is what the redemption of Christ is all about. This is what Jesus came and died to do. To restore failures like Peter. To forgive mess-ups like me and you and to bring us home through repentance. This is what the Gospel is all about. It's not about us and our performance, but Christ and His faithfulness. And this is not the end of Peter's story. If you're a Bible reader, you know this. We'll eventually get there at the end of John's Gospel. But at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 21, there's going to be another charcoal fire. When you think about it, John calls our attention here in chapter 18 specifically, not just a fire, the other disciples don't, the other gospels don't mention this, but to a charcoal fire. Because it's at a charcoal fire that Peter compromises his faith and denies his Lord. You know how, how, how the smell of something provokes a memory? How many times in the next week did Peter smell the charcoal? as they passed through some street and remembered those words, I don't know Him. But at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 21, John points out to us another charcoal fire. This one started by Jesus on the shore of the lake in Galilee. And there by that charcoal fire, the resurrected Christ will invite His disciples, including Peter, to eat with Him and fellowship with Him. And after that meal, around that fire, He will look at Peter and He'll say, Peter, do you love Me? Peter will say, yes, Lord, You know that I love You. Three times He will ask the same question, once for every denial, leading Peter to confess again and reaffirm once more his faith in Jesus. Please listen, Christian. Your sins and your failures do not define your relationship with Jesus. His love and grace and forgiveness do. You bring your failures and your sins to Him. You bring your denials to Him. You bring all of that to Him. You trust Him for His gospel word of forgiveness and restoration. And listen, He will Restore you. That's what the gospel is all about. Lord Jesus, as we stand here looking at Peter's story, oh, would you prevent us from being hypocrites who shake our head that he could do such a thing? Would you let us, in the mirror of your word, see our own face and let us hear our own voices those many times that we have done similarly, perhaps even worse. 
And would You let us see not only that there is brokenness and repentance. Lord, there's a place and time for tears. Repentance is sweet. And many times tears come when we see how desperately we have failed. Would You let those those tears bring us back to Jesus by the fire and to hear Him once again say, Do You love Me? Walk with Me. Know Me. Receive from Me what only I have power to give. Forgiveness and restoration. And then, Lord, marvel of marvels, You'll do what You did with Peter. You'll actually use us. You'll actually work through us. You'll actually sustain us that we might walk in faithfulness, still fallen, still stumbling at times, but in faithfulness by the power of Your grace. Oh God, grant such grace this morning to every hearer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.